Hello there, listeners. Welcome to the second Fiblet episode of Fact or Fiction. Two weeks ago, I promised that I'd begin this minisode by owning up to the fiction from Fiblet number one. If you decided the fictional story was a second one entitled Cold-Blooded Patricide, the story of the young man who killed his father when the father caught him robbing the safe, then you were correct. Good job. Also, thank you to those of you who provided feedback on this experimental form of fact or fiction. I've made a couple of tweaks. This week's edition is a little more detailed. I found four different articles. Well, (laughs) I found three different articles and then I invented one. So what I'm going to do is I'll read the articles just like last time, and you can decide which of the four is my attempt at creative writing. And then I'll come clean in two weeks on Fiblet number three. Or if you can't wait that long, you can find the truth at factorfictionpodcast.com or on the Fact or Fiction Facebook page. While you're on that Facebook page, don't forget to register for the Bell Toffee Contest. You know you want to experience that signature toffee crush for yourself. All right, everyone. Listen carefully, because as we all know, it's more difficult than you think to distinguish between fact or fiction. So, ready to play? Let's get started. Choice number one. Murdered for her money. This article appeared on April 22nd, 1899 on page one of the Herald and Review out of Decatur, Illinois. This article was special to the Herald Dispatch from Pana, Illinois. April 21st. Last night at midnight, officers from Pana went to the home of Frederick Sibley, age 20, arresting him and his wife and Mrs. Sibley's adult son, Henry Bruno, age 22. They were charged with the murder of Jane Bruno. Young Bruno and Sibley are supposed to have murdered her, while Mrs. Sibley is held as an accomplice to the crime. The suspicion of murder having been committed followed the discovery that young Bruno had forged his aunt's name to a deed, conveying to him 40 acres of land and the fact that she had not been seen for 10 days. After having done this, he made arrangements to secure a loan of $1,000 on the land from W.E. Hayward. The papers had already been recorded when the clerks handling them became convinced the signature to the deed was not that of Miss Bruno. Suspicion was further aroused by the fact that young Bruno, who was to have been in Pana Thursday to get the money on the loan, did not come. These facts led to inquiries being made, and it was ascertained that Miss Bruno had not been seen since April 10th, while the deed of the 40 acres of land bore the date of April 17th. A warrant for the arrest of Bruno was sworn out, charging him with forgery, and officers arrived at his home at midnight. He met them at the door with a drawn revolver, but did not attempt to use the weapon. When the officers asked for his stepfather, he told them he was not at home. Mrs. Sibley joined him in that statement, but the officers guarded Bruno and made a search of the house. They found Sibley hiding under a bed. The entire party was brought to the city and locked up. This morning, Bruno confessed that he had forged his aunt's name to the deed. A party was then made up and returned to his home to make a search of the place in the hope of finding some trace of the missing woman. 
Soon after they arrived at the farm, they found the body in the well. When brought to the surface, it proved to be a mute witness of a dastardly crime. In different parts of the head were found four bullet holes. Young Bruno's record is a bad one, and that of his mother and stepfather is no better. Two years ago, her husband was taken suddenly ill, immediately after eating his dinner. He died within a few moments, and it's now supposed that the mother and son poisoned him to obtain a $2,000 life insurance carried by him in the modern woodman. At the time, nothing was thought of the matter, and there was no investigation into the death of the elder Bruno, but today, a drug dealer told of having sold to young Bruno a quantity of arsenic about the time the father died. The Panna officers are likewise satisfied that Sibley and Bruno are the men who murdered Mary McIntyre in this city a few months ago. She was a woman who lived alone and was supposed to possess considerable money. Her mutilated body was found one day under a bed in her residence in the Fatham District. Choice number two. Albright's in St. Louis. They were taken there to escape a possible lynching. This appeared on January 23, 1897, on page one of the Newsboy, Benton, Missouri's newspaper. Joe and Jim Albright are a hard lot, and the people of the southern part of Scott County and the northern part of Mississippi County breathe much easier since they are behind bars. Joe is a beardless boy of 17, and Jim is about 22. Both are small in stature, and neither will weigh more than 125 pounds. They appear cool, deliberate, and unconcerned, but their eyes are very restless and of a blue-gray color. Last October, Ike Large, a brother-in-law to the Albright boys, was standing in the rear of a store at Bertrand when Joe stepped to the door and, without a word of warning, shot him down. While he did this, Jim was by his side, also armed. Both brothers then left town. Joe was trapped by the officers of New Madrid country and arrested. Jim was also wanted as accessory to the killing of Large, and it was for this offense that he was evading arrest. Neither of the boys seem at all concerned about the horrible crimes they've committed, and we are told talk about it as unconcernedly as if no crime had been committed at all. About 18 months ago, the Albright brothers terrorized the people in their neighborhood, and Jim was brought to Benton Jail with one or two very well-developed charges of assault to kill hanging over him. He had his trial at the last April term of court, and as is frequently the case with those who are able to raise a little money, he was let off easy. Had he been punished as his offense deserved, it is probable that both Ike Large and George Elliott would be alive today. Choice number three. An unnatural crime from the June 20th, 1895, page one of the Palmyra Spectator. In 1886, Clarence E. Todd married a grass widow named Bethel, who had three children. Some time ago, the youngest child died. The couple did not live happily, and Todd left his wife. The stepson took the part of his mother, while her daughter, 22 years of age, was favorable to her stepfather. Mrs. Todd had been married three times, her first husband being Benjamin Bethel, by whom she had this daughter. She became divorced from him and married a second time, but did not live long with this husband before they were separated and were divorced. She then married Todd, and their domestic troubles have been aired in the courts of Hannibal for a long time. At the last term of the Hannibal Court of Common Pleas, he was granted a divorce from his wife. When the divorce was granted, the daughter took sides with the stepfather, claiming that she did not believe the charges made by her mother were true, and for the past three weeks has not lived with her mother. Since then, the woman has been in a state of frenzied jealousy and finally accused Todd and her daughter of being intimate, 
and they were arrested, tried, and released, the trial proving the falsity of the charge. It has been expected that the woman would do something desperate, and the affair Saturday proved this to be true. In the afternoon, Mrs. Todd went to Miss Bethel's boarding place during the latter's absence and took to her home some clothing, which she claimed did not belong to Miss Bethel. When the latter returned, she discovered her loss and at once started for her mother's home to obtain possession of her clothing. Witnesses say she remained in the house only about 45 minutes and was then seen to stagger out upon the sidewalk and fall to the ground. Three shots were heard fired and, and the cries of the young girl were distinctly heard as, Mama! Oh, Mama! Mama! When help reached her, she was dead. Her last words being, Oh, Mama! And as she gasped these words, she died. The Todd woman denies the killing and claims that her daughter committed suicide. As there is no evidence to support support this assertion, and as the woman has on frequent occasions made threats against her daughter, no credence is given to her story. She had also threatened the life of her husband and on one occasion snapped a revolver in his face five times. Expecting something of the kind, he had taken the precaution to file off the plunger of the revolver, making it harmless. The woman bears the reputation of being a perfect she-devil, and the general impression is that the murder was cold-blooded and premeditated. The murderess was brought to the city and placed in jail Monday afternoon. Choice number four. McIntosh offers no defense for senseless murder. From page one of the April 18th, 1915 issue of the St. Louis Republic. Last Thursday, respected Webster Grove doctor Joseph P. Schmidt took his newly purchased Model T and his 10-year-old son on a fishing expedition to Crevecore Lake when the pair made a wrong turn and coming upon a stranger walking the road asked that man for directions to the nearest crossroads. The stranger, without warning, pointed what was later determined to be a 38 Smith and Wesson revolver at the men and fired. The son managed to make his escape by dashing into the wooded area nearby, but the father was mortally wounded by two shots to the head. Later that same day, a courting couple encountered the Model T with the dead man in the driving seat. They alerted authorities who soon identified Dr. Schmidt. When dispatched to the Schmidt home, Police found the widow frantic with worry about her husband and son's disappearance. A search for the missing boy was soon underway. Over 50 local residents and police officers scoured the area until nightfall. Fortunately, the stalwart young man had found his path to a farmhouse after a day of wandering. In the morning, the farmer drove young Schmidt to his home, where he was reunited with his family and was able to give detectives a good enough description of his father's murderer that the police soon arrested John G. McIntosh, a hardened criminal well known to police. When pressed for an explanation, McIntosh said little, only expressing that he was sorry his aim at the boy was so poor as to allow him to escape. Young Schmidt is prepared to go on the witness stand to accuse McIntosh of this heinous and senseless crime. Alrighty, folks, those are your four hard-to-believe stories. I promise three of them I actually found in newspapers. One I did make up. So before I sign off for the day, I want to recap your choices just to jog your memory. Choice number one was murdered for her money. The story of the two young men who killed an elderly woman and then hid her body in a well. Choice number two, Albright's in St. Louis. 
They were taken there to escape a possible lynching. So this was the story of the two brothers who were a menace to their county and were arrested for a murder or two and moved to the St. Louis jail for safekeeping against the angry people of their neighborhood. Choice number three. An unnatural crime. An older woman, jealous that her grown daughter and ex-husband might have become an item, murdered her daughter by shooting her and then claimed it had been suicide in spite of witness accounts proving otherwise. And choice number four. Macintosh offers no defense for senseless murder. A man shot and killed a stranger who asked him for directions while driving. The man's son escaped and managed to give police a description of the killer and was scheduled to testify against him in a court of law. So remember, one of those is fictional, and it's your job to decide which one I've made up. I will tell you in two weeks when I publish Fibble at number three, but if you can't wait that long, please go to my website, factorfictionpodcast.com, where you'll find a list of my sources for the four articles, including full credit to myself for the Imaginary News article. You can also find the truth at the Fact or Fiction Podcast Facebook page, and while you're there, participate in that contest to win a bag of scrumptious bell toffee. I'll be back next week with a full-length traditional episode of Fact or Fiction that once again illustrates that fact can indeed be stranger than fiction. Goodbye!